Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We believe that the most significant lever to creating a vibrant future is leadership. We help leaders evolve and innovate their organizations. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association, and this interview is being hosted in conjunction with the International Leadership Association. We're talking today about Stewards of the Future, a guide for competent boards, and I am delighted that our guest today is Pella Bank-Jorgensen. She's the CEO of Competent Boards. They offer the Global Online Climate and ESG Competent Board Certification Program with a faculty of over 100 renowned international board members, executives, and experts. And we're going to talk about her new book today. So, Hella, would you tell our guests a little bit more about yourself? I would be delighted to do that, Maureen. And thank you so much for having me. As you say, I'm, I'm the founder and the CEO of Competent Boards. And yes, we actually have now 150 board members, executives, experts that are helping me educate board of directors and also executives, as well as investors, to understand what I call the ABC of ESG and climate. So understanding these subject matters that are now more and more on the top of the agenda for board members. But apart from that, Maureen, I'm... Uh, had a long career working with companies within sustainability, did the first green account in the world, did the first integrated report in the world, the first supply chain program where we looked at not only the age and the wage and the hours, so what you have called sweatshops, but also environmental issues in supply chain and, and the resiliency of supply chain. But we can talk a lot more about that, but again, delighted to be here. The thing I take away from your background is you're not new to this. This has been a career-long commitment to moving the needle in areas that we are now saying are crucial. For you, they've always been crucial. That is true. And and yes, I started, I guess, with my master thesis back when I started. Well, I was a business lawyer, but started to become an accountant and believed that we needed to not only measure the traditional financial things, but also environment and, and social issues and have that as part of the financial reporting. So yes, I've worked for many years on these areas and helped so many companies actually make a lot of profit because that's also part of it to be a sustainable business, to see the opportunities, but also manage the risks. And the reason I point that out is people are suspicious and in some cases rightfully suspicious to folks who jump on whatever is the latest trend and just pointing out that this has been your life's work, not just the latest shiny thing for you. Yes, that is true. Many people are telling me now, oh, you're just in time and it's so smart. I'm like, yep, I've been on this for 30 years. Thanks for noticing that, Maureen. So Hella's book that we'll be talking about today, that publication couldn't be timelier with companies around the world having to seriously examine now environmental, social, and governance, so ESG issues, in the wake of the recent COP26 summit in Glasgow. To achieve long-term profits and sustainability, boards must ask the right questions on a range of complex issues, including climate change, ESG, corruption, cybersecurity, human trafficking, and supply chain resilience. And Hella has experience in all of those. So she joins me today to share the insights from more than 150 world experts and reinforced by international case studies that she shares in her new book, Stewards of the Future. The book is a must-have guide for board members and executives everywhere. Hella, we started to hit on this, but why should people read your book now and what should they be taking away from it? Leaders, I think, should read the book to benefit, well, as you say, from the inside and the experience of these over 100 global board members, executives, experts that are contributing to the book. And of course, hopefully also my own experience over the past 30 years helping companies and I'm covering these 11 different ESG topics because for me, it's very important that we think integrated. It's not just saying, okay, let's focus on one area and think silos. 
all of these different environment, social governance issues are interrelated and we need to look at that. So I think that's one. I've got fantastic reviews from so many people off the book, but one of those reviews are that you can learn how to surf. He said this leader that he's talking about the challenges hitting the boardroom that will drown so many who are, well, threading water in this status quo. And unfortunately, that is what we're seeing at the moment. So he says for those board of directors that they should read it, use it as a surfboard and start paddling. But personally, I want leaders of today and tomorrow to read it, to get informed about ESG, so environment, social governance, climate, human rights, responsible use of data, artificial intelligence, supply chain, anti-corruption, cybersecurity, diversity, equity and inclusion, as well as also shareholder and stakeholder engagement and how to disclose to these. We're seeing so much activism at the moment. So what does the future of good corporate governance look like and what is it that the leaders should do in that regard? And perhaps if I may include a tool in the book, it's a guidebook, right? So, so it's a guide to, I was almost saying like a more healthy company and a more healthy career. So we have another one actually of the leaders in the books that says something, the line of that, when we leave this earth, what matters will be what we leave behind and for whose benefit. And then he's saying that, you know, we have these 10 questions that I've included in each of the 11 chapters and is calling the 10 conscious questions per chapter. And then saying that, you know, 11 chapters later, you will know what your company should leave behind and for whom. I wrote this book to give leaders a tool to become stewards of the future and therefore help the companies, the societies, the stakeholders they serve and themselves. Today, it's not enough anymore to say, I have a lot of experience. I just told you that I had 30 years of experience. It's not enough if you don't have the insight and experience on what you need to know for, for tomorrow. Things are happening so fast right now. So you need to have the insight. You need to have the foresight to provide that oversight that board of directors and companies and the planet need right now to thrive. As part of the ILA interview series, I had the pleasure of talking to the Right Honorable Kim Campbell. For listeners who haven't heard her, the only female prime minister of Canada. As we started the conversation before the interview, even she pulled out the book she's reading and it was, I'm not going to get the title right, but it's How to Be a Good Ancestor. Her comment that those who come after us, future generations, are going to measure who we are by what we leave behind, exactly what you're saying. So at a point where so many variables are intersecting, it requires a great deal of systemic thinking and thoughtfulness. Because as you talked about the list of items that board members are having to balance, I can't just be a sustainability person or just be a cyber person or just care about human trafficking. As a good leader and as a good board member, I need to be thinking about the intersection of all of these and how to balance them. If we're not overwhelmed by this, we're probably not fully embracing the depth and the complexity of the issues we face, and hence having a good guidebook to at least get us started. I love what you say there. And I actually, in the book, in the thank you, I'm talking about the indigenous people's seven generation principle that we are to leave all decisions that we make. You know, we need to think about their impact seven generations from now and keep the world, the planet sustainable seven generations from now. And I think, I think it's important that we think about that. It's such a beautiful way of looking at it and saying, think about your decision today what impact will that have seven generations from now? I love that idea. And I, I've studied Native traditions for decades. And that's one that resonates with me. Back to your question, as a leader, either running an organization or in an organization or as a board member, in each spot on the org chart, I have a different responsibility to the next generation. And to your point, it's not just my children. It is all of the people and animals that inhabit the planet that keep a healthy ecosystem. It just moves us out of the idea of thinking about 
building personal wealth that goes to my family and instead is about take care of the ecosystem in which they're going to live. Well, exactly. And that's where you need to have this short term, long term, close to far away from and have that holistic, integrated thinking. We need to get away from thinking in silos. We can't afford that anymore. And it's frankly not serves us that well. And you and I have talked about from a leadership education perspective, that silo thinking was good enough until this level of complexity. And as the issues become increasingly more complicated and complex, we need to elevate the thinking. And I would even argue evolve the thinking. It's not incremental at this point. It's evolutionary. The leaders, they need to think about their stakeholders. What are those wishes and the needs and the dreams of today and tomorrow? What are their fears? And I think as, as leaders and as human beings, we need to be curious, but also serious about it. It's not enough just to ask. It's also, you need to internalize that and saying, what does that then mean? You need to have that integrated mindset that I think is very different from when someone asked me, you know, so isn't that groupthink? No, it's not, right? Groupthink is where we kind of like, we all look at each other and we say like, oh, you know, Maureen, if you think like this, then perhaps I should do the same or we don't have the diversity of, of thoughts in the room. But we need to have that integrated mindset where we can understand our different stakeholders, but at the same time saying, this is what is right. What is the purpose of the organization? What's the purpose of what we're doing? And I think we need to be able to see both the risk and the opportunities. And it's funny because when you look at it, there's a lot of leaders that perhaps not have started as entrepreneur or as a collaborator. I think what we need right now, we need that entrepreneurial mindset. We need those that are collaborators because no one can do this by themselves. And I think that's also what the younger generation are looking for. They're looking for integrity and that we are holding ourselves accountable. And this purpose of leaving the company and stakeholders in a better place when we leave the company, when we leave the board, uh, when we leave the world, than when we started the journey. The idea of responsibility that the response required from me is directly correlated to my ability. And for those of us who are in these precious roles of governing, do have a responsibility, fiduciary, legal, and I would say ethical, to make decisions that do attend to the broader range of considerations. The work that you're doing is not like, okay, we're profitable. Now we get to go do this nice greeny stuff, but you tie it very directly to the sustainability of the organization. It's not a nice to do. It is the path to success. It's not about how you use your money. It's how you make your money that we should look at. So it's great if we go out and say, okay, well, now I made a lot of money. Let me give back. I'm not saying that's bad at all. Please keep doing that. But I rather want to see that the way we make the money is where we take into consideration what impact does that have on our different stakeholders on the planet and therefore our children and, and grandchildren. That's kind of like the different way of thinking from where we say, okay, this is philanthropy. It's like, okay, let me go out and give some money. Great, keep doing it, but make sure that the way we make the money is where we actually are proud. And we're seeing that happen more in some of our iconic brands. Can you give an example of someone from your case studies who in the past, it seems like, you know, we look way back at the Rockefellers and people like that who were called robber barons for a reason, but our local library was one of the Rockefeller libraries, I think. So they did make their money on the backs of people and then give back, you're saying that equation rightfully needs to shift. Can you give an example of a company who has made that shift? Indeed. And again, I think we have so much out there that we are all enjoying today that we are proud of. And again, I'm not saying stop doing that, but I would rather have that we say we're making the money in a way where our children and grandchildren and peers can enjoy those things and we don't destroy them. 
So in terms of an example of a company, many come to mind, but one of those companies that we're talking about in, in the book is uh, Novozymes. And Novozymes is an enzyme company, and they looked at what was happening around the world. Walmart was out at some point and saying, we want to reduce the carbon footprint in our supply chain. And they started to then say, how can we be part of the solution? Novozyme, not... Um, direct supplier to the Walmarts of the world, but a direct supplier to the Unilevers of the world. And by using the enzyme, you can reduce the carbon footprint in many different products that's off the shelves of, of Novozymes. So they looked ahead and said, how can we be part of the solution? They're using what we call the sustainable development goals. So 17 biggest pain points, but also 17 biggest opportunities in this world to guide them to say, what is it really that the world need and want? And how can we be part of that solution? So every time they go out and do new products, research and development, they screen also then the products to say, how can we be sure that we are part of the solution and not part of the problem? So that's one. But in each of the chapters, I have different case studies that hopefully people can both learn from, but also say, oh, okay, that was smart. How can we do something similar? As you say that, you're talking about companies of different scales. So one thing, it's not just the big guys, or it's not just exclusive to small entrepreneurial organizations or just multinationals. It really does apply across the spectrum of organizations. Exactly. And I love that point you're making there because I think we, we very much say, oh, this for the, the large corporation, this for small corporations. We all connect it, right? Let's think about it. You know, the larger corporations, they have pressure from all of their stakeholders to have better, greener, more healthy products. It's not that they produce those in a vacuum. They have suppliers. Those suppliers are those smaller corporations. So they are asking those smaller corporations to make sure that the products that they receive have low of carbon footprint, are healthy, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, again, interconnected. And I think that's why when we're talking about supply chain, so I said, I guess, in the start that I've been working with supply chains also for many, many, many years. And I think we've seen now during the pandemic the need for resilient supply chains, not only in terms of, you know, can we get this as cheap as possible, as quick as possible, and as many colors as possible, but really understanding that one thing is to have those products produced somewhere around the world in a responsible way that my stakeholders, my customers, my employees, governments find is ethical, responsible, in relation also, you know, complying with the, with the laws, but also that you ensure that you have that understanding of what are the implications of climate, where we suddenly see we don't get the big shipping containers in as, as soon as possible. And I guess we also saw something during the holiday season in terms of supply chain as well. We need to look at all of these things interconnected, understanding the implication Again, not in silos, but as a whole. And then that's the role of the board of directors. Look at all of the dilemmas and figuring out, are we going to do one thing or another? But not to have the insight and the foresight to make those very complicated decisions. That's a recipe of disaster. It seems more important now than ever for a range of reasons, many of which you've pointed to. One is leaving a different future we are now seeing directly in our immediate lives the impact of climate volatility. Before we started the recording, we were talking about the natural disasters we've all seen in the last week. These are irrefutably now happening more frequently. You've been working on this for 30 years and you are now bringing forward some very robust training and a book. Was there something that sparked you to do it now? Honestly, it's been on my list for a few years writing this book. But it was clearly, yes, we're training so many board of directors and executives and investors to become ESG and climate competent. 
and think I want to read as many as possible because I think it's important and I think it's important for the individual as well as for the company as well as for us all that we have leaders that understand what I call the ABC of ESG and climate, but also can act upon it. And I know that not everyone can go through our training, but I'm hoping that the book will give many more the opportunity to learn from all of these leaders that I have had the pleasure of of working with and, and learning from many of those leaders that you see being portrayed as the best, but many, many other leaders. But also there's Chad Holiday, who was the chair of Shell. So I'm trying to really ensure that I have a good mix of global business leaders, board members that are contributing to the book. And I'm hoping, therefore, that people from all over the world, and again, I also have Mm -hmm. people from all, you know, leaders uh, from all over the world contributing. So it's also from a geographical point of view that you get those different viewpoints and insight. Can you share with our listeners to really illustrate some real examples some of the biggest risks and the case studies that you use to illustrate how to address them? There are 11 chapters and a case study for each of them. And of course, each chapter looking into a different subject matter. And it's everything from cybersecurity. How does a company deal with that when that suddenly hits to in a situation where you say, how do we look at all of these dilemmas as a company? Shell, as an example, mm-hmm. all of the dilemmas that you suddenly are looking at from a, from a company a point of view that are looking to, to transition in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. What are the issues there? They're all case studies that I think will help leaders to see hmm, there are questions to ask yourself as a board member, as executive, and then see how aligned are you in the boardroom. Because we have a lot of surveys out there right now showing what people think, but do your fellow board members think the same? Are you aligned? So so that's another thing I'm trying to do in ensuring that we get alignment also in the boardroom and therefore can move forward. The case study makes it more real, like your example of the enzyme company in the Walmart supply chain. Is there something that you want to highlight Today, I I realize that could be something different tomorrow, but is there one that right now is resonating with you that if people take away nothing else, they would take away this case study? There's the case study in relation to chapter, say, just say no, which is in terms of corruption, Okay, where there's one of the companies that's really been through a hard time in terms of corruption, but now really have deep dived into what does that mean? How do we ensure our integrity? Another one is in in terms of diversity, where State Street Global Advisors put out the fearless girl. What impact have that had around the world? Then you have one of the companies out of Asia in terms of the supply chain issues, uh, a company that was rated very, very highly on, on ESG ratings. However, reality seemed to be very different and they were stopped at the U.S. border in terms of their production that was part of, of the whole pandemic. I'm not going to mention them here, but they are mentioned in the book. And again, I, I'm, what I'm trying to highlight is that we really need to look beyond the glossy pages of sustainability reports or EST reports. We really need to understand what is it that going on in the company. And that's why, I, to me, it's so important that we understand if the board of directors, if the executives are ESG and climate competent, because otherwise it, it can only be you know the glossy pictures, but that's not mm-hmm. the reality. And one of the things I'm saying very clearly in terms of also Asset managers that looking at the ratings and the rankings. Mm-hmm. One of the questions we need to ask there is that how much education, how much training do the board of directors, executives have in those matters that matters most nowadays? I'm looking at book right now in terms of climate change. We have another in other case study of NRG uh, energy and in, in, in terms of all of these. Things that, that also happen today related, of course, to climate change. And what else? Um, 
for ESG um, that's Inditex. So again, a lot of case studies in the book, but that's just part of it. The other parts are what's the issues, what to do about it, how to handle it, what are the questions to ask yourself and your fellow board members, mm-hmm. how to move forward. And, and I think that's how to move forward. That's the most important part for me. You know, I keep wanting to say, what's the biggest issue? And yet I realize that is antithetical to your whole point that there may be a biggest issue today and tomorrow there's a different one. And it's the systemic look that helps me mitigate the range of risks. That is true. But of course, you can say that there are some overarching issues, climate being one biodiversity being another, the supply chain issues, as we just discussed, and human rights issues being one, understanding your stakeholders, including your shareholders, what is it that they are looking for? So I think understanding your employees, understanding your customers, I think those are some of the the big one. Another one that growing every day as well is is artificial intelligence that I'm, I'm covering as well and the responsible use of data and cybersecurity. So I think that's one of those, what are the actions that the company do, not just in terms of, of the goals and the statements, but how do we how do we communicate those? And that goes to now we're seeing more and more standards onto, onto how to report, mm-hmm. but we're also seeing more and more scrutiny of not only reporting, but really being accountable to what's reported, having the incentives that align to it so we can trust the data and the reporting. So yes, you're right. All of these are interrelated and we need to look at it as a whole, but also we can't can't eat the whole elephant in one bite. Mm -hmm. So you need to say, what is it that's most important for our company? And that's why I normally say, start with asking who are your key stakeholders today and tomorrow. Figure out what are, as I said before, what are their dreams? What are their concerns? What are their expectations? How can you report in a way where you can trust the data? We say we, we manage what we, what we measure, but we also need to ensure that we measure what are the right things to do and make sure that we also can trust those data. And, and unfortunately, there's a, I think we have a little bit of way to go before we can say we can trust all of the data that, that we are seeing at the moment. One thing that sticks out for me is you've said several times you have reflection questions and guiding people because the case studies quickly become relevant, but not as current. And I'm thinking of something like artificial intelligence that a few years ago we were talking about if AI moves past workforce demand, people's jobs will be replaced by AI and then we'll have unemployed people. Now we have the situation where we don't have enough people and many organizations that were moving slower to modulate, navigating the community health and things like that by exiting people from jobs. Now they can, they have to accelerate it. You know, what are we doing in hospitals that we can automate so that the surge of COVID patients have care? We're not making nurses quicker and we can't pull them out of poor countries and put them in rich countries and think that's going to work. It does seem like the issues continue to evolve. Exactly. And I think that's important, but there are some key principles and you actually just mentioned care. And one of the things I'm saying more and more is that you need to show you care. You need to show you care about said stakeholders many times, but care about what is what is your impact. And yes, artificial intelligence. Oh, you can look at it as something that's scary, or you can look at it as something that really can help you. I think it can help us, but we need to make sure that we have the right principles in place. We need to make sure that we don't have any bias. Mm-hmm included. We need to ensure that it's ethical, our decisions. And just because it's it's a AI that making a decision does not mean that you or I or anyone else are not responsible. We are the one that's responsible. So we need to make sure that if we are serving at a board using AI or management using AI, that we fully understand what's doing 
and that we can answer the questions in the same way as this. It's just smarter. It's just it can make you know many more decisions or not many more decisions, but many more give you many more data than than you and I could do in in a whole lifetime, mm. right? But we need to look at it as exactly a, a tool, not something that is taking away our responsibility. We don't put our ourself, but also the, the younger generation in danger or in force us to make decisions that we don't really want it to just because of how we're not using data or responsibly. This is such an interesting subject that we could probably spend hours on, but the evolution from robots who would pick something off a shelf and pack it in a box to using robotic process automation and machine learning now to make decisions or to point us in a direction that that stuff wasn't happening even five years ago. A local business owner in Ohio is funding some research to look at how do you build love, and I would say empathy and wisdom and things like that, into the algorithms as they're learning. So they're not just learning technical, they're learning, can you say, ethics. Yeah, and that goes to who are learning that, right? Because the culture you and I have might be very different than culture other places, etc. So how do we ensure that we not put even more bias into this? But I think the other thing, and I've been asked from time to time, you know, should we have a robot, artificial intelligence, around the boardroom table? And I think Mervyn King, who is another contributor to the book and and was the one that Nelson Mandela asked to do the corporate governance code in, in South Africa, saying, you know, that the company is this organism without a heart, a mind, a soul, a conscious. The heart, the mind, the soul, the conscious, that lies with the board of directors, the management, everyone that works with that company. And I think we need to to keep that. So if yes, if you can have one that have the, the heart, the mind, the soul, and the conscious. But the question is, who are teaching that the ABC mm-hmm. of that? And I think that's that's going to be what we really need to look out for, because otherwise you suddenly have a you have a different different way of looking at it that perhaps you find is is ethical and show love. Well, and your point of ethical looks different in different geographies, different religious backgrounds, different contexts define ethics very differently. Some of it can come back, and we just said in terms of the seven generation principles, but you also have the golden rule to do to others what you want to do to to you. I actually want to change that a little bit and say, you know, if you understand what it is that the other person really wants, that's what you should do, not just what you think that is the right thing for you, but what is the right thing for that other person. And that's hard, right? Because you actually need to ask. You need to be curious Mm -hmm. and you need to understand and and figure out how do you care for that other human being or biodiversity or other things as well. I absolutely agree with you. Taking the perspective of the other, not my perspective, because it's incredibly arrogant to think that good looks like what I want and not what others need. I think we've talked about this before, but the idea that one of the stakeholders is the environment. It is beyond the human categories, but also the environmental biodiversity climate change, those, however you language it, it is beyond just human stakeholders. Yes, it is. And I said it before that a company cannot succeed in a world that fails. You and I will probably not enjoy, even though if we had all our retirement funds and and everything, but if you're sitting and looking out on a fields that burning or forest that's burning and and you can't go outside and 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 breathe fresh air etc what is it worth so i think yes we have seen you know climate is showing not only somewhere far away where you know people are are, are now 
experience flooding or drought or anything else. It's happening right here, right here in our country. And it's, sorry, but it's unfortunately taking lives. And that's not only human lives. It's taking life also of the future humans, but also if we think about biodiversity that we are changing at the moment as well. We have a tremendous impact and a tremendous responsibility and a tremendous opportunity to really make informed decisions about what it is that we're doing with every single action we take. And yes, the environment, social, all of those different things that are making sure that you and I can can be here right now. But we're never really thinking about the externalities. What are the externalities? And how do we make sure that we're not getting those bills sent from Mother Earth, uh, which we probably are seeing at the moment, and that we don't get you know the bills in for- form of stares from our children sent at some point saying, you know, you knew this, didn't you? But what did you do? We need that care. And, and, you know, I'm I'm talking here is that this is not business. This is actually business. This Mm -hmm. is business because if we don't get this right, we're not going to have the business. And you and I, by the way, not going to have our Mm -hmm. retirement funds because we will see so many stranded assets and so much else that that will take away what you have put away to a year or two or 10 or 20 or 40 from now. I think that's a really important point that unless we're the uber rich, we're at risk. So externalities, stranded assets, climate impact, real estate that used to be worth an incredibly large amount of money will will not be. We won't be able to sell it. Yeah. And, and, and we're seeing in terms of infrastructure, right? It's everything from weather pattern changing, uh, meaning you know, do you need that winter coat if it's not as cold or or do you need more rain boots if it's it's more wet? So very decisions that kind of like smaller to the larger infrastructure. Are our houses built so that they don't get flooded? Do we have heating? Do we have you know air condition that is not then contributing further to climate change? Do we have the infrastructure that means that we can actually transport what we need to transport from one place to another? again, without sending a bill to us later because of climate change. I did an interview with someone talking about the biggest technology changes and the 3D printing piece, that what we transport a decade or so from now will be very different, assuming this technology emerges as it's predicted, that actually some of the technology will address some of the ESG challenges. And I, I assume that's what you're referring to as the opportunities. I mean, there's a ton of opportunities, but that's one of them. And it's fascinating you saying it. And another company that I would say is a trendsetter and re- really doing, making it a difference is mask, mask shipping. And I've had the pleasure of working with them. So full transparency in, in that regard. But now we have a situation here. It's a chicken and egg situation. We need to transport the goods and services with less or no carbon footprint. How do we do that? We need to have some ships, container ships that can then run on different types of fuels, doesn't exist. How do you ensure that that you actually you can build the ships, but if you don't have any fuel, but who would also go out and, and, and start developing or looking into the fuel if you don't have the ships. So they have made a very bold step and go out and say, we're going to solve that. We're going to build that. And then we're going to help in terms of really getting that green fuel. Let's just call it that. It's much more complicated than that, but in place. And I think that those bold leadership movements then also means that the customers look at and say, this is a company we would like to work with. So yes, you're right, 3D printing is coming, but I also see then those that are right now transporting are really ensuring that they are also part of the future. And I think we also need to think when we get to the 3D printing and others, what are also the implications of that different places around the world? 
right now, a lot of the goods and services you're getting are feeding families other places around the world. So what are also the complications? I mean, we can't stop development and we should not, but we should think about what does that then mean for other people? How do we ensure that we in what we call a just transition, right? That we have that in place and and that might not be for the average person in in a company start to think about that. But as as a whole, we need to think about those bigger pictures because otherwise we are going to see, already seeing climate refugees and, and, and others. But I think that big, big picture we need to ensure that that we all are part of the future and are stewards of the future and not part of the problem and, and just looking at what's happening only locally because what's happened globally will impact what's happened locally. On that note, let's go back to measurement because you're talking again about the interconnection and the complexity. And we've heard the term greenwashing described to some organizations I think I've probably been hearing that term for a decade back where sustainability was a new focus. So with the ESG goals, how are you measuring and holding companies accountable? So I think you said it, not just the glossy pictures in the annual reports, but really that there is substance to the ESG activities. Definitely. And yes, we've heard greenwash, ESG wash, SDG, sustainable development goals. But I think it's crucial, and I said it before, that we manage what we measure, right? So we need to measure the right things and we need to ensure that we measure it right. So first, again, determine that you understand the key stakeholders, their dreams, their concerns, their expectations. And then what are the issues that they are looking at? And to the standards, we now are seeing a convergence of standards where we have uh, what's called IFRS, International Financial Reporting Standards, has established a sister organization to what's called IASB, International Accounting Standard Boards. And this sister organization is the International Sustainability Standards Board. What they're doing at the moment is what I actually set forth my master degree 30 years ago, of course, much, much more advanced, but looking to see how can we put a standard in place so that we can measure and we can compare so we don't compare apples and and oranges. And so that we can also use that both internally in the company where we're now putting incentives in place that's tied to remuneration of both the board members, executives, and employees. Externally, where we're seeing all of these reports, where we have all of these fantastic information about what the company do or do not do. We need to ensure that we have the same rigor in place as we have in the financial accounting. And this I'm talking as an accountant now, right? We need to ensure that we can trust the data. We need to ensure that we have not just the glossy pictures or not just half the story, but actually have what we can call the true and fair view, where we're looking into what is it that really matters for this company to understand what are their impact on environment, social And what is the governance that they have in place to ensure that it's not just one year, but it's actually a long-term plan? Another thing, perhaps on that, we have what's called TCFD, so the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, that now are part of the the regulation in many countries. So, So companies need to report on that. And that's everything from what is really the strategy when it comes to climate? What is the scenario planning? What is it from a governance point of view, the board, et cetera? And then perhaps one of the things that the SEC published a letter, a sample letter to companies regarding climate change disclosures. In that sample letter, they are nicely saying that if companies are only putting sustainability information or climate information, other information in their sustainability reports, but not in the filings to the SEC, they might get this letter kindly asking 
the company to advise the SEC why they don't find that it's material enough to also be part of the SEC filings. So I think we're going to see much more scrutiny. Those companies that do not have the data collection in place and not data collection, everything, but collection of what's material, they better get started now because we're seeing it everywhere. It's getting part of not only what your customers are asking you for, but what asset managers are asking you for, but also regulators. You do hit on the point then that if companies aren't doing this, they will pay higher rates for capital. Yeah. They will struggle to attract and retain the best talent because we know our younger folks actually do care about some of this stuff and they are becoming a larger percentage of the workforce and will continue to going forward. So on multiple stakeholder levels, it also makes good business, which is where you started. Well, exactly. And that's the, that's the whole point. I think right now, if you don't learn what I say, the ABC of ESG and climate, you're not only losing out of on opportunities and, as you're saying, the talent and the younger generation. I actually see more and more that it's not just the younger generation that are looking for this. I see more and more coming to me as part of the program and saying, some of saying, we are seeing from asset managers, we are seeing for the proxy advisors that this is something we need to have this. We would like to put in our SEC mm-hmm. filings, in our proxy statements, in our financial report that the board and the management is indeed ESG and climate competent. I know that that's being looked at from the asset managers to say, okay, we we actually talking to someone who have put that in to make sure that the board of directors and executives know what they're talking about. But I'm also seeing that people are coming to me and saying, this is the right thing to do. And my children and my grandchildren are starting to ask me, what am I doing about this? And I want to make sure that I can give them an answer and be part of the solution. So I think that you have many more at the moment that, again, some of looking at it from their own career perspective and saying, if I need mm-hmm. to get on the next board, I need to have this inside. This is really something I need to understand in order to be a better board member. This is something you, you have to do also because your company is asking for it, your shareholders are asking for it, your children's asking for it, your stakeholders are asking for it. I don't see that we in 2022 and, and the years to come can have leaders that do not see themselves as uh, stewards of the future. That's probably going to be our close, but I'm going to ask one last question, which is at a point in time where you're incredibly busy, you chose to write this book. Assuming the book is brilliantly successful, this is part of your legacy. What is your goal for the impact of this book as part of the tapestry of activities you engage in right now? And what is the impact in seven generations for you? If anyone had told me how much it would take to write the book, um, but I'm really, really happy. And I'm so happy for all of this feedback I'm getting from you know leaders that I respect very mm-hmm. much saying that I wish I had read this book 20 years ago because they would have made different decisions. For me, yes, it will be that I have an impact and I already know that now because all of those people that go through our EST Competent Boards uh, Certificate and Designation Program and Climate Competent Boards uh, Certificate Programs are telling me how much this changing the way that they are making decisions and therefore making better decisions that's better for the companies and but also better for, for themselves. So that's that's one. But that also means it's better for all of us. And it's better for seven generations from now. So my hope is that I will inspire. But more than that, I will give the gift of insight and foresight to those board of directors so they can make the informed decisions. And or I have something I call exponential empowerment and exponential impact. And that's exactly what I'm hoping that I'm doing. I'm, you know, think about that little drop in water that when you start seeing those rings that just goes out from that. 
that's what I'm seeing at the moment. And it makes me so happy. I'm having, we just gone through exams from the program and these board members that have been bored, you know, for so, so many years are sitting and thanking me and saying, this is the best program that they have ever witnessed. And they have learned so much and they are taking it into account and they're, they're reflecting and making a difference. And that makes a big difference for me, but it definitely also makes a big difference for themselves and the companies that they serve because they're not only going to be better companies, they're also going to make better returns and have better employees and have better customers that really want to be part of the solution as well. So it's a positive circle. Thank you. And I hope that the hour you spent talking about exponential payback, I trust we will have thousands of listens for this hour of investment and that that will touch all of the lives that those thousands of people also touch. So thank you for the brilliant work you're doing. This turning point, the 30 plus years of investment you've made to get here is really crucial for all of our success, the leaders and board members who will engage, and all of the people who are impacted by their decisions, who may not know what ESG is, and they don't need to, but equipping leaders and board members creates that positive future. Yes. And let's just show we care. To our listeners, thank you for engaging. I highly encourage you to buy Hella's book. So will you say the title again? It's called Stewards of the Future, a guide for competent boards. I guess you can't see it. I'm holding it up. (laughs) And this is also for leaders, right? Not just board members. Exactly. It's for leaders. Amanda Ellis is saying this is for everyone. So we'll close on that note. Thank you, Hella, again, for joining us and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. To our listeners, strongly encourage you to pick up the book. I assume you can get it through all standard book outlets. Exactly. Amazon and all all of the bookstores. And to learn more about Hella's organization, Competent Boards, it's competentboards.com. Correct. And I, as a proud graduate of her ESG program, I highly, highly recommend, as she said, graduates are floored by the amount of insight and wisdom we gain from her program. Thank you. Thank you.